How's everybody doing this morning? It's good to see all of you here in person, and also thanks for those of you who are joining us online. Thanks for joining us as well. So I want to welcome everybody to the First Universalist Unitarian Church of Wausau. My name is Brian Mason, and I serve this church as its minister. Since 1870, the First UU Church of Wausau has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. That means a lot of things. But a few of the things that it means is that we welcome all people, just as you are. And so regardless of where you are on your life's journey, whatever happened to you before you got here this morning, I hope that you know that you are welcome here. So we are currently worshiping online as well as in person. So be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter if you haven't already, or follow us on Facebook or um, Twitter um, or Instagram. Uh, Do we have a Tumblr? I don't know any of these things. We're on Match.com if you're looking for a date. Anyways, uh, we're we're everywhere uh, on the internet, and so follow us there. Um, If you have an order of service, if you grabbed one as you walked in the door this morning, you're welcome to follow along now in reciting the church's chalice lighting, and I'll begin and then light as you finish. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, You're all welcome to join me now in body or spirit and rise and sing our opening hymn, number 361 in the gray hymnal, Enter, Rejoice, and Come In.
don't mind, please remain standing for the affirmation this morning. It's also in your order of service. The affirmation is, love is the doctrine of our church. The quest of truth is its sacrament and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve humanity and fellowship to the end that all souls shall grow in harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other. In our doxology. Please have a seat. So I'll tell the story for all ages this morning. No one has to come forward. Um, so my question for all of you this morning is where in the church's history does the idea or the uh, commandment, if you will, to serve others come from? Well, I guess I'll just tell you where it comes from. It, where it comes from is it comes from the Bible. That's where it comes from. It comes from the story of Jesus. And so if you read in the Bible, who ruled the era, the area where Jesus was born and raised in? Surely you may know this. You're unit- good, smart Unitarians. The, the Romans ruled, right? And so whenever the Romans ruled, there was, in effect, a caste system. There were people that you couldn't touch, so much so that if you were at the top of the caste system and you touched someone lower in the caste system, you would defile yourself. So literally, there were people who lived on the street who never got physical touch except probably in the most terrible and terrifying ways. This is also a shameless plug for my book club. We're discussing caste, if you would like to join the conversation. But anyway, so Jesus bursts onto the scene um, in these extraordinary ways, and whenever he grows up to become an adult, he does something completely different. It disrupts the entire social system, and what does he do? He touches people who are not touched. And who are the people that aren't touched? Lepers, sick people, blind people, people who are prostitutes, people who have nothing in this world, nowhere to turn to, not a social safety net to turn to to help them get out from whatever it is that they're faced with, no city counselor that they can talk to. And here comes this young guy and this group of knucklehead fishermen and destitute people along with him, and they go out into the world, into the known world, and they touch the people that have never been touched. That's where the commandment comes from. And that's the tradition that we inherited, and it's the tradition that we continue to move forward in this world, to pick that up as best we can in our church life, to pick this up as best we can in our personal lives to help reach out to people in need. And there are many ways that you can do this, right? You can do a lot of hard work. Think about all those people who work for Doctors Without Borders or 
the Red Cross. There are lots of ways you can do it. But another way that you can do it is by being the church. Just think about what the symbol of this institution means to people. This is why people commonly come to churches when they need help. I've been here what will soon be the start of my fifth year. And I'm always amazed that there are people, whenever they get out of jail, they have nowhere to go. There's no social safety net for them to go to. And so what do they do? They knock on our doors. And they come here. And that's our tradition. And that's what our kids are inheriting. And they get to take that forward whenever our work as adults is done. That's the story this morning. And you're welcome to join me in singing our children's song as they stay right here in the sanctuary with us. I invite everyone now to join me in a spirit of prayer and meditation. I say this almost every time, but I encourage you to put both feet firmly on the ground and press them down just to feel the earth support you below. If it is your custom to meditate or pray with your eyes closed, you're welcome to close them now. You can leave them open if you'd like. And before we journey into silence, take a moment to become aware of your body, the heart in your chest, the air in your lungs, the warmth of the person beside you. Let us journey into silence with these words. God of healing and new hope. Our gratitude for all these gifts reminds us of the broken, empty places that still remain, near and far. The endless, aching need of the world is beyond what human hands can fill, and so we pray that you will provide what we cannot. We pray for those who make decisions and protection for those who live under their rule. We pray for those who live in fear of violence and for those who make them feel afraid. We pray for those who are left behind when tragedy strikes and for those who care for people forced to move forward in sorrow. We pray for those who live in mansions and for those who live on the street. We pray for those who have too much and for those who have too little. We pray for those who live in sickness and pain and those who find ways to bring them relief. We pray for those who have asked us to pray and for those who cannot pray for themselves. And now, dear friends, call to mind the joys and sorrows in your lives, and let us meditate on them in silence together now.
Amen. And please remain seated for our prayer hymn. It's in the Teal Hymnal, number 1031, filled with loving kindness. We don't pass a traditional plate as we did in the time before, but nevertheless, the way that we keep this religious institution going is entirely exclusive and a result of the generosity of people like you, our friends and members. And so you'll see on your way out today that we have a gift basket, or if you'd like, you're welcome to stop by our, ch our church's website and you can make a one-time or an ongoing gift that way. And I want to thank everybody in advance for your generosity.
This morning's reading comes from Luke's Gospel, the 15th chapter, beginning in the 11th verse and lasting through the 32nd. This is the parable of the prodigal son and his brother. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them, he said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that will belong to me. So he divided the property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property and dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, And still no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I'm going to get up now and I'm going to go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please treat me like one of your hired hands. And so he set off and he went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion, and he ran and put his arms around him, and he kissed his son. And then his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to one of his servants, Quickly bring a robe, and the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and then go out and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, but now he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And then everyone began to celebrate. But the man's older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called to one of the servants and he asked, What is going on? And the servant replied, your brother, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. And then that brother got mad and he refused to go in. And so his father came out and he started to plead with him. But he answered his father. He said, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you. And I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never, you have never given me even a young goat so that I can celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But you see, we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours, he was dead, and now he's come to life. Your brother was lost, and now he's found. Therein ends the reading.
So how does pain fit into your vision of the good life? I'll ask the question again. How does pain fit into your vision of the good life? I ask this question assuming that you want your life to be good based on what it is you think is good and worthy of your time and effort. But I make no assumptions about pain. Pain is a fact. It's a capital T truth, as my philosophy professor in college liked to say. And pain comes in many forms. Pain comes in so many forms that we have, literally, we have metaphors for pain. I used to work in a children's hospital as a chaplain, and we used to have these little animated graphics that the kids could point to to help them describe their pain. The smiling green face, it meant that there was no pain at all. Whereas the frowning red face with tears coming off of its face meant that it was the worst pain possible. And adults like to say things like, my arm hurts like a son of a gun. And I heard someone, in fact, say to me the other day that they had cried so hard that they felt as if their guts would fall out. And companies that make pain and anti-anxiety medicines make billions of dollars every year. And they also make addicts, too, adding pain on top of pain management and often followed by more pain for the patient and often their families and their friends, too. Pain, sorrow, anxiety, grief, they're individual feelings, but they're contagious, too. And so as this pandemic calendar has stretched on into way more than a year now, psychologists and public health officials note that many people at this very moment are experiencing sorrow and grief. And sorrow looks different on everyone, and it tends to find all of us in our own unique places. The therapist and grief expert Megan Devine She says that everyone is grieving something. Everyone. Some of us are grieving a loss of routine. Some of us are grieving a decline in mobility. Many of us are mourning our jobs that have changed and may never return to what we were trained for or what we're even good at. People lose their homes every day. And worldwide, three million people, three million people, are dead because of COVID-19, and that means that many millions more are mourning the loss of those people's lives. And we mourn our world, and we mourn our nation on fire with violence and hatred in a border so filled with children in detention camps, the international community is preparing for, and I quote, a humanitarian crisis, end quote, just a thousand miles south of where we're sitting right now. The fact is, grief is in every single room you enter, even if you don't notice it. And grief is here with us now. I read an article last week that said the only way to make sense of grief, of a year of pandemic, of the small and big sorrows in our personal and collective lives, is to strive for what this particular therapist calls both-and thinking rather than either-or thinking. So in other words... What this therapist was saying is that it's okay, it's absolutely okay for you to feel happy and sad at the exact same time. You can be thankful for all the good things you have at the same time that you're missing everything that you've lost and mourning much of what you read and see on the nightly news. 
She also said that you can be lucky and not okay. In the parable of the prodigal son that we just read a little bit ago, we see just that. People who are lucky but not okay. People whose losses and demons are real and powerful, but mostly they're hidden to onlookers. This is my opinion, but of all the stories Jesus tells, this is the one a lot of people know best. And I think it's the one that we know best. It's because the characters, those characters capture our imagination. Right? There's that son who leaves and he wastes absolutely everything he's been given and therefore he probably ruins the family's good name in the process. And then there's that other son, that other son who is so self-righteous, he thinks he's perfect. All the while that he's thinking he's perfect, he's probably doing everything wrong and if he's not doing everything wrong, I can guarantee you he was annoying every single person around him by being a smug jerk. And then there's the other character, the loving, generous father to these two knuckleheads. Now, I've heard the story summarized like this. You've got the sons who are prodigal failures, and you have a father who is prodigal in his loving generosity. The Franciscan priest Richard Rohr says that it is a story of separation and reunion that tells a crucial truth. And here's what Rohr says is the crucial truth. There is something we know by losing. There is something we know by missing and yearning. And that something is something we cannot know by any other means. And isn't that the truth? Isn't there something about loss that has the power to teach us unlike anything else? If you don't want to take my word for it, take Joni Mitchell's word for it. Help me finish the lyrics to this song. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know? You can finish it. I'll finish it. No one's talking. There we go. Uh, uh, Wait, I put down the rest. I'm going to say it anyways. And then she says, you paved paradise and you put up a parking lot. As the saying goes, we find by losing... We hold fast by letting go. We become something new by ceasing to be something old. And nobody can say for certain why this is the case, but it's the case all the same. Ask yourself these questions with me. How many of us have had to lose something or someone before we figured out how much it really mattered? A friend dies. We take a lover for granted. A decent professional in the company is scapegoated. That field in the side of town with a few shady trees and a couple tattered park benches is paved over for a strip mall. What the story tells us is that we're all experts when it comes to taking things for granted. If we weren't experts in this, there would have never been a church in the first place. There'd never be no such thing as therapy, no such thing as psychology. But the fact is, we take our lives for granted. We take our friends for granted. We take moderation for granted. And in addition to being experts at taking everything for granted, we're experts then at passing the blame. And all of this, all of these themes are right there in the parable of the prodigal son. I expect you could teach an entire psychology course using this story and this story alone, and you would never run out of material. 
It's a story that understands how hard and how much more necessary it is for us to wage war against our inner demons than it is for us to demonize our enemies. After all, every day, I am in battle with my inner self that knows what I ought to do, and then that other inner self of mine that tells me to act out of my paranoia and my anger and my depression and my fear. But you see, the trouble with this inner battle is that when this happens, it always leaks out of me, and then it leaks out into the world around. And in fact, this inner battle of mine is just like the inner battle of yours. And it's all contagious, just like the flu. And we all know how contagious it can be to fight our demons. We've all got friends and family members, and maybe you're one of those friends or relatives. Or maybe you're that coworker or Wausau resident or church member. And you fight your demons so terribly and you fight them so alone that in the process you drag others into your personal crap so much that you end up leaving behind a cold gray cloud that follows you and everyone you've come into contact with. We all have this friend, right? I do. It bears repeating that in the Bible it says that blessed are those who mourn The Bible does not say, blessed are those who are self-righteous blowhards who drag everyone into their unprocessed junk. That isn't in the Bible. We are at war with ourselves. And that war is contagious. America versus the Taliban. Israel versus Palestine. Husband versus wife. Son versus father. COVID scared versus COVID denier. Liberal versus conservative. Black Lives Matter activists versus racism deniers. In the epistle of James, it asks, and I quote, what causes war and what causes fighting among you? The epistle goes on to ask, is it not your passions that are at war in your members? You desire and you do not have, and so what do you do? You kill. And you covet and you cannot obtain, and so you fight and you wage war. But what James goes on to ask is this. In fact, he turns it around and he makes it a statement. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. Now, what does that mean? I once heard a great preacher put James' idea like this. He said, we ask for victory when we should be asking for reconciliation. We ask to win people over to our, to our side, what we call the right side, before we've ever even stopped first to ask ourselves if we have moved over to that right side. We think most often that we have been called to wage war when in fact we have been called to struggle. And we fight for things that we think are worth fighting for, things like country and prosperity and power and all those personal liberties we don't want to give up. But what does good old St. Paul tell our spiritual ancestors that we are supposed to be fighting for? No one ever said that we're supposed to fight for power and prosperity. We're not supposed to fight for our personal liberties or even our country. People of faith aren't called to medicate the symptoms. I'll start that over. People of faith aren't called to medicate the symptoms. What we are called to do is heal the illness. We're called to struggle within and without for righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. 
And just think about if we fought for all of those things. What great people we'd be if that was the way that we spent our waking lives. Just think about the marriages people would have, the friendships, what our churches could be, what the world would be if that's what we fought for. But as the parable of the prodigal son reminds, doing what is right is hard. And it's terribly hard. Because who among us dares to be totally righteous in an unrighteous world? Who dares to have faith in a faithless world? Who in this me-first, ego-driven, power-hungry dystopia dares to be gentle? And we all know the answer to that already. The answer is very few people take up that call every day of their lives. But in fact, that is what our faith calls us to do. It calls us to transformation. The parable of the prodigal son shows us that the road to transformation is never a straight one. It winds over hills of disappointment and it winds through valleys of sorrow and there are cul-de-sacs that whip us around and put us right back where we started. But what the prodigal son assures is that God is greater than our sins and God is greater than our sorrows. And when you listen to this story, how does God show up? God shows up in people, and people like us, people who are lost but can be found, people who extend friendship on our worst days and gentleness and love, even when we've wasted the family fortune and made a mockery of our good name. You see, pain and sorrow, they're like gravity. None of us can get around it. So the question is, how does pain fit into your vision of the good life? And I can't answer this question for you, but I will tell you what I believe. I believe that we cannot live truly apart. And we cannot be alive without mourning, and we can try and avoid pain and sorrow through distraction and avoidance, but often all that does is bubble up later. Most of us will not be like the prodigal father. Our closest relatives in this story are those prodigal children. And we all know that the apple never really falls all that far from the tree. But as long as we are alive, we can try. We can fight the good fight of faith. We can start our days by looking inward before we look outward. And we can trust. We can remind ourselves that we're not called to wage war. We are called to struggle. To struggle for righteousness and faith and love and gentleness. And this is harder than it sounds, but it's what we're called to do. And so go forth this day and fight the good fight of faith. And fight it for your sake, but fight it also for the sake of the world. Amen. You're welcome to rise and body your spirit now for our closing hymn, number 128 in the gray hymnal, Love Will Guide Us. 131. Oh, sorry. Sorry about that, 131.
If you came here with someone, you're welcome to grab their hand, but not anyone else's. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. You're welcome to have a seat and relax, enjoy the postlude, and hopefully I'll bump into several of you as you're leaving. <laughs>